Genesis 2 tonight. And we're going to set up Josh for Sunday as he'll be preaching about the Garden of Eden and the entrance of sin into the world. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 2. There's something that's really uh, crucial uh, in the Old Testament, in the Torah. And if you ever if you ever read the Old Testament and realized, you know what, it, I, this sounds familiar. I feel like I've read this before. And in Genesis 1 up to 2-4 is a creation account. Now, after 2-4 is basically another creation account. And so we go, well, is it two different stories? Why are there two stories? But it happens quite often. Noah sends out a, uh, a dove on the ark. He also sends out a raven. Uh, there's several times, they're called uh, doublets, but their stories kind of told back to back. Reiteration is a very important Hebrew uh, rhetorical device to basically say something again, but in a different manner. It happens a lot. And so even though we wouldn't necessarily use it a lot in Western rhetoric, basically nowadays, uh, it was quite common for them to repeat things that were important. Uh, if you're, you know the song we sing, holy, 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 it comes from Isaiah. But in the Bible, when you see a word repeated, it, it's, it's big, uh, building emphasis. It's more important. When Jesus says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, or, you know, he says something twice, he's emphasizing. So here in Genesis 2, we have basically another creation story. Um, we're going to pick up in verse 5. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow up out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden, there, uh, there were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. The, names, the name of the first is Pishon. The, it winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of, the, of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die little foreshadowing there, right? Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to man to see uh, what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up in the place, up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman 
for she was taken out of man. And here's the really popular passage we hear mentioned so many times in the New Testament. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. The title of my lesson tonight is Merciful Commitment. And we're going to talk a little bit about marriage. We're not going to spend a ton of time on it, just probably two midweeks if we need time, maybe three. But talking about marriage is a really, really important thing to do for a couple of reasons we're going to get into in a little bit. Uh, actually, this very verse uh, is what, what the one that Paul quotes when he writes to the church in Ephesus about marriage. And in Ephesians 5, Paul says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is great. The NIV used to say this is a profound mystery. And all the married people in the church, that's the one part of the verse we, you can really say you can connect with. <laughs> Marriage is a profound mystery. But I am actually speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each one of you must also love his own wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. You know, marriage is a, a massive concept in today's world. There's a lot of different objections to marriage. There's a lot of people who can kind of be really attracted to the idea of marriage or really repulsed by it. And really that comes down to three main things. Usually your past. Uh, what does your past look like? Did your parents get divorced or not? It has a big impact on your view of, of whether you'll, you'd like to get married. Did your parents fight a lot? Even if you think that marriage might be good, you might say, well, I want to get married, but I, I know that there's going to be lots of fighting, or I don't want to get married because my parents fought a lot. Or maybe it went the other way where your parents seem to have a pretty good marriage, so you do want to get married, but your past can influence your perspective on relationships and on marriage. Uh, others, culture. Your culture has a huge influence on, on how you view marriage uh, and, and what, uh, why you would go after marriage. It's interesting to note that every culture that we know of in the history of the world uh, has had marriage at the center of it. We've never found a culture without marriage. It's, it's always vital to, 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 to mankind, regardless of religion or sphere or uh, geography. Um, so past can be a big one. Uh, culture uh, can be a big one. Uh, and also a big one is fears. A lot of times fear can play a really strong role. Uh, and we can actually pass up a lot of very suitable potential spouses because of fear uh, in that way. And so tonight when we talk about marriage, you're, all of you are very, in very different spots in regards to marriage. Some of you are like Seth and you're not married. Um, but you, maybe, you, maybe you hope to be married. Some of you are not married and have really no interest in getting married. Some of you are married and maybe it's been really tough in your marriage. Some of you are married and maybe it seems pretty great so far. Some of you have been married and are not married anymore. Maybe your spouse died. Maybe you've, been, you've you had a divorce. We're all kind of in different spots in regards to marriage. Uh, and so tonight, when we, what we really want to talk about, what we really want to hope to do is uh, to really give everyone, regardless of your station in life, try to help see what is God's view, a biblical view of what marriage should be. And that's helpful for several reasons. For, it's for marrieds and non-marrieds to cast a vision of what marriage is according to the Bible. For marrieds, it's important because... It could correct mistaken views that may be harming your marriage. 
If you're, in, you're married right now, you could have a view that's actually harming your marriage in some way that's not a biblical view toward your marriage. Uh, it's helpful for non-marrieds because it helps single people stop over-desiring marriage or destructively dismissing marriage altogether. And so as singles, you can kind of go one way or the other. I don't want to ever get married because I don't want to give up my freedom or because I know that it just seems like everyone who I know is married is angry or everyone who I know is married, it doesn't go well, so I just don't want to get married. Or you go the other way and say, no, I, I, I need marriage. I want to get married uh, because I, then it'll give me like self-worth and it'll help me. It'll make me feel whole. You know, you can just like Jerry Maguire say, you complete me, you know, and feel like, oh, I found my, I found my other, right? Like any movie, any movie ever, really. Uh, and we live, we live in a culture that does a really good job, maybe it's not a bad job, but a really good job of emphasizing this um, soulmate theory, this idea of finding somebody out there who is the most highly compatible person for you that exists out there. Um, and so one of the things that's really important as we talk about marriage is it's actually, it's one of the things that I think will help us be able to be lights in Charlottesville the most is our marriage. Uh, and it's amazing too how many kids want to become disciples because their parents' marriage or the opposite, uh, which is it's just true. And so marriage is one of those incredible, marriage is a vastly important institution. And uh, the world's trying to grapple with what it is. Yeah. And the world's taking different stances on it. And I think because, uh, and the numbers are all over the place. I think it was in 1970, um, 82 percent of uh, adult, uh, adults were married, and now it's 60 uh, percent. Uh, so less people are getting married. The number that struck me the most, uh, as, as it was interesting, was um, the num- number of children born out of wedlock has increased quite a bit. Uh, marriage is actually uh, divorce has actually doubled since 1960. Um, and the other one was the number of women between the ages of 22 and 35 who live who cohabitate, they live with a boyfriend, uh, is 40%. And by, the, by in their late 30s, uh, women, uh, uh, women in that same age range, by their late 30s, 70% will be living with a non-spouse or living with a boyfriend. That's 70% of all women. That's an incredible number. And so this is what our world's doing. And I think what our world has seen is there's two things. There's an idealism toward marriage, an idealism of if I could just find that person, if I could just find any romantic comedy, right? If I could just find that person and the movie always ends right when they get married. You're like, you got to keep going, right? Like that's when it, that's when the, that's, it's, it's easy up to that point. It's hard after that point. But it's funny, every movie that there's no movie that begins like a romantic comedy. We just got married. Now here we embark into a lifelong commitment, you know, but it's not like that. But we live in a world that actually the. Funnily enough, the University of Virginia did a, a, a very huge study called the, um, the mar- I think it's called the, the marriage study or the, uh, the uh, comprehensive marriage study. But it was this, uh, they asked women what was most attractive or what they looked for in a man. And it was actually really striking that for women, uh, a physical appearance and actual uh, uh, kind of chemistry, basically, basically physical or emotional chemistry was what women looked for the most. Uh, which is really quite wild because it's, it's, what is chemistry? I don't know. It's like this thing, this thing we made up, like it's how you feel, right? For men, I was actually surprised at first. And then I realized that I said the exact same thing 
as a young man, but for men, it was overwhelmingly the number one thing they look for in a woman is a woman who won't change them. But a woman who, uh, basically, men want an Basically, men want, and this is how idealistic it's become. Men want an attractive woman who supports their life goals, who will basically slide into their life without changing anything. So a woman you can just fit in. And so men are, con- so this, is pr- this is why cohabitation is so popular, because people are, there's a fear of commitment. And people also, they're, they're so nervous that this, this maybe not is my soulmate. So let me live with her for a while and not be committed. So if I happen to come along somebody better, I can just leave her. And so the cohabitation thing is really the world's trying to solve. They feel like, what is marriage? How can we really solve this issue of marriage? It seems like everybody who's married is, is angry or frustrated or they get end in divorce. Or I had a lot of people, and this is, this is, it was actually sad. When I was engaged to Jenny, I had a lot of people, some of them disciples, men, who were like, you can still get out now. And I was like, I'd rather you be like encouraging me, you know, at this point, not like, you know, but that's the thing. Actually, there was a, a guy who went on um, his social media uh, and basically said, I'm never going to get married. And a lot of his married guy, a lot of his married friends uh, that are father's husbands said, made jokes that like, yeah, I would never, you're so lucky. I would never get married if I had, if I could go back. So like, what is, so it seems like, wait, how do we, if we're going to get married, it seems like most people aren't happy. And if you, if you don't get married, so people kind of want to have their cake and eat it too. But what is the real thing? Like, I think Chris Rock said it best. You're either married and bored or single and lonely. And it seems like, it seems like those are the two choices that the world, you're either married or bored and single and lonely. Like, but that's, that's what the world kind of views. But is it the biblical perception of what marriage should be? A lot of times young people go out, they pursue a boyfriend or girlfriend or a spouse because of how they make them feel. But the reality is, is that feelings change. And even what women found is they pursued men with, 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 with good chemistry, physical or emotional chemistry, was that chemistry inevitably changed. People change over time. People, you know, and all the different little things that happen in our life, how do we really, is the soulmate thing really true? And is it really the perspective in the Bible. Uh, I have a couple of just notes here and I have a couple mind blown emojis because we're going to try to kind of attack some of these cultural truths that aren't really truths about what it is to be to be married. And the first is marriage challenges the contemporary Western notion that individual freedom is the only way to be happy. We live in a world that says the only way to be happy is to have individual freedom. So that's why men want a woman who's not going to, oh, I want them to support my hopes and dreams that I already have. And I don't want them to change me. I remember even when I was dating Jenny, I remember telling that to a friend of mine, like, because there were some things in my character that, that was honestly just sin. But anytime you get into intimate proximity with somebody, you're, they're going to see the real you. Uh, and so the fact that you want somebody out there who is like, this perfect ideal. That's why so many people, I think, they have this ideal of marriage and dating. And they get to know somebody and they're let down. And they think, oh, she has a fault. She must not be the one. Let me dump her and find the other one who inevitably, guess what? She has a fault and he has a fault and people change. And so it's this perception of perfection. But the challenge is here is, okay, is individual freedom the only way to really be happy? 
even in our marriages, I think after being married for a bit, you realize this. And I think we get to a place where we think, okay, I have this interest as a father or a husband. I guess I better just give it up for, the, for what's best for my family. Or you say, no, actually, I'm going to pursue my personal fulfillment over my family. Most men make, women too, choose between the two. A woman will say, well, I actually prefer this hobby over my family, so I'll just do the hobby and the family. Or she'll say, no, I'll give up the hobby. But is that really, like, is this as good as it gets for what marriage is supposed to be? And people do not, they miss out how glorious marriage can be. But I think a part of it, too, is we have to have a realistic perception of what marriage should be. A lot of times it's just expectations, a realistic but also a glorious perspective of what marriage can be. The other issue, and this, uh, this is a professor from Duke actually made this claim, that no two people are compatible for marriage. And it's true. It's true. Nobody out there, no two, no two people are compatible for marriage. And you might say, well, there are people who are obviously like very not, like obviously not compatible. Like she doesn't speak English. Like, okay, the, yes, I, I get that. But the point, the point is, is that there's, there's nobody, there's nobody who's going to be able to meet that expectation of high compatibility for you. Because I think what happened was, I think as a, as a nation or as even as a people, we used to believe, you know what? We had this, 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 this uh, security and this hope uh, and this moral compass that came from faith and heaven and the afterlife. And we're, we're going to please God. And marriage, marriage was affirming. Marriage gave security. Marriage... Uh, 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 was, was really uplifting, but then it, it shifted. And I think once we as a nation said, actually, heaven probably doesn't exist and God probably doesn't exist and everything's relative, everyone, instead of putting their hope in God, shifted. they had to put their hope somewhere. And so instead of putting their hope in a perfect God, they tried to find putting hope in a perfect person. And so we as a nation, because we don't believe as a nation in heaven, we, not, not in reality, not in movies, not in, not in the essence of what we really do as a culture. We then made, we made romance Yahweh. We made romance God. I felt that way. I went from, I, I pursued so many, even as a disciple, I pursued so many young women thinking that, okay, this is, she's going to make me feel all these things and she's going to make, and she's going to be perfect. Whenever there was an inevitable flaw or a bump, it was just, well, I guess this isn't what, it's just not going to work out. I guess this isn't what it's supposed to be because it's, it should be easy. It should, maybe it shouldn't be this hard. But anybody who wants to do something valuable, that's going to be difficult. Like you shouldn't say, ah, you know, Major League Baseball shouldn't be this hard. Like hitting a fastball shouldn't have to be this hard, right? Or becoming a professional violinist shouldn't be this hard. But like, like just like anything else, if love is going to be difficult, we've got to have a real, realistic expectation of what that is. And I think, I think the issue of it is, church, is that we honestly value individual freedom over everything else. And so when we're single, even if we say, well, I never want to get married because I don't want to give up my individual freedom, you're actually doing one of the most destructive things you can do because you're, you're tightly wrapping up your heart, like C.S. Lewis says. You're, if you really want to protect your heart, insulate it, box it up, protect it. And yeah, you'll never get hurt, but it also become cold and irredeemable. Um, and hopeless. So sure, protect, you can, it's one of the worst things you can do out of fear. Um, I don't want to give up my individual freedom. I remember actually really funny, Jenny and I had, for our premarital counseling, 
uh, we had to come up with expectations. We do this when you, when you get married. You come up with expectations. And there, you have a form you're supposed to fill out. And I'm very, I'm very countercultural. I'm very nonconformist. So I didn't fill out the form. And Jenny, you know Jenny, she had like 19 pages of, of form filled out and different scenarios of expectations that would occur. And I remember the, the guy leading our premarital said, Drew, you know, what are your expectations? And I said, in my proud millennial moment, I don't have any. I am easy, bring it on. We don't have to even do this. Like I'm beyond this, all this stuff. And so, so they would ask me, Drew, what are your expectations for dates? And I would say, whatever she wants. And then she would say, well, how about, how about once a week? And I said, cool. And then they said, Drew, how about having meals together? What are your expectations? And I said, I don't know, like once a week. And then Jenny was like, I was thinking every day. And then I was like, every day? It's like, it's a lot of, well, how am I going to watch my, my sports? How am I going to? And I was thinking, and then so as she's sharing her expectations, all I kept thinking was, how am I going to be able to do all the things that I like to do? And so I got, so I did what I do. When things don't go well, I shut down. And I had this epic, I had the mind's brow. And I furrowed, and when, I, when a mind furrows their brow, something is occurring in their brain and heart. So Phil, the guy leading our Bible study, said, Drew, let's take a walk. <laughs> so we go outside, and I said, man, she has all these expectations. Why can't she just let me be me? I'm not going to be able to do all this stuff I like. And Phil smiles, and he goes, sounds like you have expectations. <laughs> and I was like, oh, man. It's true, I do. I do have expectations. But I was, and I told Phil, I said, but what about all these things I want to do? And he goes, but you're forgetting, like, you think that you're going to lose something, but you're actually gaining, you're gaining a wife, you're gaining fulfillment in marriage. You're, 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 you're not, you don't have to choose either or. And that's the beauty of what's happening here in this passage. Uh, I love this quote, by the way. Why should neurotic, neur- neurotic, selfish, immature people suddenly become angels when they fall in love? The reality is, the reality is, is that you are all sinful. We are all sinful. We are all in a fallen state. We are all deeply flawed. And when you pursue somebody and put them on a pedestal of idolatry, uh, you, you do a lot of risky things, not just when you're actually engaged or dating, but actually in your marriage. And it doesn't have to just be your spouse. It could be your kids. You, you could transition from my wife, my wife, and then now my, my kids, my kids, and you can have this idolatry toward these, but guess what? Your kids are deeply flawed human beings. Your wife, your, your husband are deeply flawed. They're, they're sinful. But in this passage, if you notice, he says the two will become one flesh. This is a great and profound mystery. The Greek is it's a mega mysterio. It's pretty easy to remember. It's a mega mysterio. And by mystery, Paul doesn't mean it's like a secret insider's club that no one can ever find out. And ah, it stinks, right? Mystery, he means it's this wonderful, uh, marvelous, unlooked for truth. You got to dig. You got to find. You got to find out what pleases the Lord. You got to discover it. This unlooked for truth. But what is it? Well, the passage says, Paul explains. The mystery is great, right? But I'm actually speaking about Christ in the church. You know, God begins the Bible with a wedding. God ends the Bible with a wedding. Right? Jesus in the church in Revelation. He begins it with Adam and Eve there in the beginning. God's always had marriage in mind. Marriage actually preceded sin. Marriage came before sin entered the world. God's always had marriage in mind. Now, you don't have to get married, right? You don't have to get married to, to be fulfilled. You can be 
an awesome single person. You know what? Jesus Christ was single. Okay. You know, Paul, Saul of Tarsus, single. Okay. Peter married. It's not about being single. It's not about being married. It's about uh, what your treasure is. And it's about the, the deeper reasoning for why you would pursue either or. But I think because the world has such a negative view toward marriage is the reason we're kind of talking about the truth of marriage. Because the, all the objections toward marriage out there are very, very, very real. I mean, I had a friend. She got married at 23. And she worked for Greenpeace in New York. And she was just berated by her friends like for how dumb she was to get married that young. She's just going to get divorced. She's stupid. Why would, and they just destroyed her with their post-enlightenment millennial New Yorker perspective on all these things. And it really hurt her. It really hurt her. And there's a lot of objections out there toward these things. But we got to find out the mystery, church. we got to go dig into the mystery. And what is the mystery? The mystery is Christ and the church. What did Christ do for the church? He gave himself up for her. He gave himself up for her. And that's the mystery that you don't have to choose between just being committed or just, you know, being all truth. Like if you're just truthful with somebody, but you don't have love, it's just harsh. Uh, and they don't, they won't even really be able to hear it because there's no love. But if you're all love and no truth, uh, there's no real foundation. It's all just, you know, fluffy, wishy-washy. But what's beautiful about Jesus is that Jesus knows more intimately how flawed, how deeply sinful you are, but still unconditionally committed to you. And because of that decision, you you have an opportunity to have a deep connection, a deep unity with Jesus. That's the gospel. The gospel is realization that I'm deeply sinful, I'm deeply flawed, but Jesus still unconditionally committed to me. And that's the goal of a biblical marriage is that you are aware, you see your wife's sins, you see your husband's flaws. You're able to see them, you're able to address them, talk about them, but still be unconditionally committed to that spouse. And I was going to read all the stats tonight, maybe I will next time, but all the stats point to marriage, a monogamous marriage, leading to people being happier, people living longer, especially for men. But all the, all the data, even the world is trying to figure out, even the world that... that as they are in there, they're trying to, people who put down marriage still at the end of their research say, but honestly, like the, like we, we haven't figured out what marriage should be, but we still support people who should get married because the evidence is there. They, they're happier. Everything just goes better for monogamous marriages. And even people who've cheated, people who've had extramarital affairs, they overwhelmingly will say it was not worth it. It was not what they thought it would be. And so it's, it's there in the world, but even more so it's there in the truth. And it begins, honestly, at a young age with the teens, how you view what it is, what it is to have a, a friendship with a brother or sister in the church. You know, we have an awesome opportunity as a church, if you're not married, to go on encouragement dates. And the reason we do those is simply for that, because we're actually going on a, an encouragement date with no ulterior motive. There's no worry about what's going to happen. Is he only asking me on a date because he's attracted to me? No, he's asking you on a date because he's committed to his sisters in Christ. He's committed to you regardless of any detail or any worldly perception. We're committed to one another. And so there's a beautiful thing there. There's a beautiful thing in marriage. And there's a quote from the book, uh, The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller that I love, that marriage uh, is learning to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. <laughs> Learning to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. We're all incompatible. 
And obviously there's things that can like, you know, Jenny and I, you know, all of us who are married can tell the story of how we met and different things like that. But to be honest, there's no real reason without Jesus. If there's a foundation that's not on Jesus, it will not go anywhere. So I want to encourage us to pursue the great mystery as a church, the, the, the mega mystery, which really is just the gospel. And you can only do that. The point of studying this out is not to go home and recommit yourself to your spouse. It's not. The point is to go home and recommit yourself to Jesus. Because honestly, if you put your kid at number one in the priority, it's actually the worst thing in the world for them. Because you're communicating to them sports is more important than Jesus. You're communicating to them academics is more important to Jesus. You're communicating to them, I, as your child, am more important to you than Jesus is. You know, one of the best things for kids is just not only to see their parents love God, but also to love each other. One of the biggest indicators. So we talk about priorities. The priority should always be God, spouse, kids, other. And I want to ask you, what are your priorities tonight? You may not have a spouse. You may not have kids, but you may have other hobbies. And is God your number one priority? And that's a hard one. It's a hard one, but it's got to be in order. The first and greatest commandment, you know it, right? Love your spouse with all your... No, it's not that. It's... The first and greatest commandment is love God with all your heart, strength, mind, and soul. And the beauty is, is that people who love God have great marriages. People who love God are great parents. People who love God are great singles. They're great young professionals. They're great CEOs. People who love God are great principals. People who love God, okay, are great insurance agents. People who love God are great landscapers. You guys know, you know what I'm talking about. And so the challenge for all of us, regardless of your marital situation, and a lot of you guys I know are in tough situations where you're like, I don't know what to do. It's not easy. A lot of us didn't have examples from parents. A lot of us are trying to figure it out as we go. As we, as we try to, but I want to encourage you, it is one of the most important things that we can do is have a perspective on marriage that is a biblical one, that doesn't over-idolize it, but also that doesn't run away from it. And as we close out, I just want to encourage us that we are more deeply flawed and sinful in ourselves than we ever dared believe. But we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hoped. That's the mystery of the gospel. It's love and it's truth. And through that love and truth, we can have a radical truth, truthfulness about who we are. But we can also have a radical, that Jesus has a radical, unconditional commitment to us. And that's rare. That's rare in the world. That's, I remember growing up thinking, I want to get married in the church because, man, like people in the church, they don't get divorced. People in the church, man, it looks beautiful. I know that's not true. I know Satan gets into our lives. There's things that we can't control. And a lot of us have gone through very difficult situations in our marriages. And I want to encourage a lot of you. You've gone through it with exemplary spirituality. And that's an incredible thing. But I think we got to all listen to Jesus's words. When he's asked about divorce in Matthew, he brings them back to not why they should get divorced. He brings them back to the original purpose of marriage. And I want to encourage us all to not get bogged down in our current situation, but to get actually bogged down in the original purpose of marriage, which was to show us God's love for us through Jesus Christ and to sacrifice himself for us regardless of our, uh, our sins and our flaws. So where's your priorities? That's the challenge for this, this, uh, this week. And next week we'll close out our marriage uh, mini-series and talk a little bit deeper about what actually is that mega mystery.